Batten and Brexit. Hello and welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP MEP for London and UKIP leader Gerard Batten. Hello Gerard. Hello Ian. Uh, The series of course is brought to you by the EFDD group in the European Parliament. The idea is each episode Gerard will talk about those big areas of EU policy and life uh, that has either riled him or intrigued him. And there's plenty Gerard to tuck into here because of course this situation is ever changing. By the day. Where where are we at at the moment? Are you sure about that, Ian? I think it's ever staying the same day by day from, from my perspective. Um, and I've got that deja vu feeling coming back because I talk about Brexit uh, on these podcasts and not a lot has changed. But where are we now? Well, the final withdrawal deal is long overdue because this should have been agreed with the um, European Commission and the European Parliament by the middle of October. That's what the European Parliament Constitutional Affairs Committee said, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, that it all had to be worked out by now. Uh, it still hasn't, but it's imminent. So let's hope that this podcast isn't redundant by the time we get it up and running, because we're expecting Mrs May to come out with something in the near future. What I have got out is uh, a kind of leaked... I don't know how reliable this is, but it came out in the last couple of days of what um, people think the withdrawal agreement was going to look like and we've also had this thing called a communications grid summary which tells you how the government is going to approach this over the next uh, week or two so it looks fairly reliable now what the leak is that i've got what it says is that the withdrawal agreement will mean that the uk will become an associate member of the customs union an associate member of the single market that we'll have to adhere to the rulings of the Court of Justice of the European Union if the EU says we must. The UK will allow free movement of EU citizens to the UK and grant them all the rights of British citizens and that we will only be able to negotiate trade deals with countries outside the EU if the EU approves. Uh, The UK Parliament uh, will have to comply with rulings of the European Parliament and incorporate these into British law uh, if the EU demands this so we'd be subject to their laws going forward not just in retrospect and lastly the UK will have to pay the EU membership fees on a continued basis but with no rebates now I don't know whether that's the way that it's going to be it's certainly what I've warned against for the last couple of years I sincerely hope that I'm wrong and it won't look like this um, but it is. if it does then it wouldn't surprise me in the least And what it will be is exactly what I've said Mrs May is trying to arrive at, which is a not really leaving the EU withdrawal agreement where we leave in name but not in reality. And, of course, what's come out in the last day or so is this uh, Brexit communications grid summary, which is supposed to have been leaked uh, from inside the government, which says how they're going to approach this whole thing uh, up until the end of November. Uh, And they will sell it as a magnificent triumph that, uh, you know, all of these things which uh, I'm saying are going to happen are not really happening. You know, we still retain control of our lawmaking, that we will have control of our borders, all these kind of things uh, which um, will be contradicted anyway by the substance because we've seen the checkers of agreement, which basically Mrs May said she was going to control our lawmaking, control our borders, and we could see from that that, ah, yes, but not quite because we would have to accept this EU so-called common rule book, but EU rule book on 
goods that we want to export and that we, in those uh, circumstances, have to adhere to the rulings of the European Court of Justice. How long uh, does justice. that go on for? Uh, well, this, this tra- throughout the transition period, which is supposed to go on till 2020, and now they're saying it could be extended for another year or two. So it could go on for quite a long time because that could be extended, as I say. And, of course, the Chequers Agreement has already been rejected by uh, Mr Barnier and the, their negotiator and the Commission. And, of course, what people got to remember is that once we have the withdrawal agreement agreed... Uh, then you have to have the uh, relationship with the EU agreement. It's, it's an entirely different thing, which is what Chequers represents, whereby how we're going to relate to them after we've left. So it's so 29th lo- of March, we are leaving. That's the law, isn't it? Well, this is an interesting point you make, because uh, we've done some research into this, and it isn't, doesn't quite look that way. Now, if you look at the um, Withdrawal Act, the Act of Parliament, which was passed by Parliament, it says clearly that exit day is going to come into force on the 29th of March 2019. And, of course, that is Section 1 of the Act and the most important thing. So you could be lulled into a false sense of security there. If you actually look further into the Act, then you find out that a regulation has to be passed by the Minister of State in order for that to become law. And that hasn't been done yet. Now, there's lots of things in the Act that require a regulation to actually make them enforceable and they've been passed so why hasn't the most important thing in the act been passed by this regulation which is a formality that's supposed to happen afterwards so that actually could be changed now as i said this has so you're been... saying in the small print in addition to article 50 in addition to the withdrawal act there is small print that says in fact this could be prolonged even longer. Somebody had thought about this clearly way back. Yeah, and this is this is very dense legalese. I mean, we've had a, a researcher who's a barrister looking at this, uh, who's gone into it, obviously, in great detail. Now, that first most important thing has not been enacted by a regulation, and that has to happen before that becomes legal and we leave on the 29th. We're not going to leave on the 29th until that regulation is enacted, um, and it hasn't been. And there's no reason not to do that, Because further in the Act, even if that had happened, there is, for example, under Section 20.4, the ability for that date to be changed and put back. I'll just read it. A Minister of the Crown may, by regulations, amend the definition of exit date in subsection 1 to ensure that the day and time specified in the definition are the day and the time that the treaties are to cease to apply in the United Kingdom. And then point B, amend subsection 2 in consequence of any such amendment. Well, that's legalese for meaning that they can actually put the date back, which is what they could do. So although they have the power to do this, why then haven't they passed this regulation which says it's going to happen, even though it could be changed later? And I think, being a suspicious-minded in these these affairs, that perhaps uh, this is a, a way of enabling Parliament to then actually pass a, a, um, a motion or resolution or an amendment to actually say that there should be this so-called meaningful vote on the whole thing and that we should have a second referendum. So I won't actually believe it happens until the 29th of March, if well, indeed it does happen. And, of course, the whole withdrawal agreement has to be voted on by the European Parliament. Yeah, that's another thing to remember, is that our Parliament has to pass the final agreement. And, of course, what Mrs May is cobbling together 
is not going to satisfy leavers and it's not going to satisfy remainers. So how do we know that it, that, well, that final agreement won't be rejected by Parliament? And also the European Parliament has to vote on this whole thing. And, of course, that is full of remainers <laughs> and not just, not just um, European MEPs, but uh, some, unfortunately, UK MEPs. What about this huge issue that seems to be dominating the headlines one word, gridlock. Mm. Gridlock in Calais, gridlock in Dover. The mayor of Calais has been talking about this. The French Senate, we understand, have been debating this potential. What do you stand on that? Well, this is another one of these non-issues that's thrown up all of the time regarding uh, our exit from the European Union. Because, yeah, you're quite right. Uh, an unnamed minister said that President Macron could cause havoc in British ports by insisting that things are checked in such a way that you have enormous backlogs in Dover and, you know, 20-odd mile-long queues of lorries. Trade isn't governed, for the most part, by the EU. It's under World Trade Organization rules. And there are rules about this which say, you know, you can't just put up arbitrary barriers against people's traffic across your borders when they're trading. And there are things, for example, like the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which the EU has signed up to, all the countries in the EU have signed up to, as many other countries in the world, which is meant to ease the customs uh, operations that go on. Most, you know, you look at the amount of, uh, of traffic that goes across borders. Look at the billions of dollars worth of trade that China does with all the countries of the world, for example. Now, they're not checking every container and looking into it. The customs arrangements are done back at base, as it were, and the, pa and the paperwork is, is checked in the incoming country. And only something between about 1% and 3% of actual goods are ever checked by customs officials. So all this is dealt with by the um, under the World Trade Organization rules. It's all been simplified over the last 50 years in order to facilitate trade. And the French can't just put up these arbitrary barriers uh, to trade because it's just not allowed under WTO rules. So if you want to be part of the WTO, then you've got to adhere to the rules. Now, the French have got a bit of form on this because they tried this back in 1982, long time ago, I know, but they decided that they didn't like the Japanese selling their country electronic goods, and in particular VCRs, um, and uh, the Japanese were selling quite a lot of these, and the French have always been quite protectionist. So they told the Japanese that all of their VCRs imported into the country had to be processed in Poitiers, which is not a port, of course. It's a town right in the middle of France. And what happened was that uh, you know, trade in VCRs dropped by about 90% because they had one person checking the VCRs in the customs <laughs> office. Uh, it was a bit obvious what they were trying to do. Busy old boy. It went down from 53,000 VCRs a year at that point to, uh, to 1,000. Uh, and then the WTO was then GATT, General Agreement on Tariff, Tariff and Trade, and they told the French you can't do this, so they had to climb down. So you know what the French are like. They... they they are a bit arbitrary in how they apply rules uh, themselves. They tend to look after their own interests. But this wouldn't be in their own interests anyway to gridlock trade because they, they sell us far more than we sell them. You know, what about their Peugeots and their French wine and their champagne, which we buy lots of? Um, are they going to want to damage that coming out of their country to ours? you know, in order to damage our trade with them. It's not going to happen. It's another one of these scare stories 
this this whole thing over the last two years, four months, has been a non-stop propaganda war to tell us why it can't work, how it's all going to be a disaster, it's all going to be terrible. And they're all false arguments that can easily be refuted with a few facts. A conspiracy theorist might say that interested parties won't make uh, a, a fluent um, withdrawal. Uh, they will happily see queues at Calais and at Dover. That will further prolong the process and could feed into the idea that we change the withdrawal agreements. Well, I think that's uh, the idea, because if we had a prime minister and a government and a parliament with any backbone and any resolve, they would be saying to the, to, uh, the, Cal- the mayor of Calais, well, we, uh, we've, an awful lot of traffic comes through here. Uh, in a, both of our interests to continue that. But if you want to play uh, silly billies with us, then there are lots of other ports. There's, uh, there's Zeebrugge, there's Rotterdam, there's Dunkirk. We'll be sending our envoys off to those ports and asking them if they'd like a bit more business, and we'll be seeing how we put it their way. And is it a good idea for us to have all this traffic convening on Dover in the UK anyway? Perhaps it'd be better for us if some of it went in different directions in the UK and eased the traffic on our roads. So, But you need a bit of resolve to actually do that, and we... We haven't got that because we know very well Mrs Mays a Remainer who doesn't want to leave. And, of course, look how many ministers have resigned, David Davis being top of the um, the list on that, have walked away because they know they can't implement a proper Brexit while she's in control. What's your gut as to what will happen? Let's fast forward. 29th of March, 2019. Uh, you're on holiday that day. You're trying to get back from France or Italy. What do you think is going to happen? Well, there's no reason why... Bob and his family are in Mm. their car, travelling up to Calais on the 29th of March. What's going to happen? Well, there's no reason why anything should happen that's different because they've got a British passport. Uh, That's recognised in France and every other European country. So you just go in, uh, I mean, you've arrived, you've had your passport checked or whatever, and you leave and the same thing happens. And if you happen to be driving a uh, lorry full of goods, well, you've already had your manifest checked by customs according to the, um, the rules that apply uh, under WTO, so there shouldn't be any reason problem unless the French want to get a bit awkward and then start checking every lorry. But as I said, that would be against their own interests uh, just as much as ours. And, of course, what they might actually like to do in uh, Dover is actually try to sort out the illegal immigrant problem there where our drivers are being attacked and threatened and having their lorries broken into by all these illegal migrants. So maybe it will be in our interest in actual to to try and divert some of our traffic elsewhere um, where there aren't so many illegal migrants trying to, to um, find their way into the UK. So that, maybe that would be a benefit to us, a bit of a byproduct, if we could actually help our haulage drivers to uh, alleviate that problem a little bit. It's fair to say you're not, you're not really on many Christmas card lists down there at the EU Parliament, Gerard <laughs> Batten, and probably on fewer than you were a few days ago after the... <laughs> In inverted commas, the snivelling quizlings comment. Tell us about well, this. This was—I couldn't believe this. Oh, I can believe it. Unfortunately, um, my assistant uh, sent this over to me from the Brussels Parliament uh, on the sixth of November. This is an email signed by fourteen UK MEPs, and none of them are UKIP. I don't really need to add Labour and Tory. The one Lib Dem, uh, Greens. Basically what they're saying is that they are saying that they would like Article 50 extended uh, because, you know, they're, they're concerned about the uh, the effect on Britain of this no-deal scenario. You know, they, they've got their own, the Britain's best interests in heart, according to them. And, of course, what they'd really like is for the 
whole referendum decision to be overturned and reversed is pretty blatant what they're about. And I, I felt the need to reply, because they sent this to everybody in the parliament, so I, I felt the need to reply to them and point out that they're a bunch of snivelling quizlings who are just desperate to keep their seats on the EU parliamentary gravy train. 17.4 million people voted to leave the EU in, in 2016, in spite of Project Fear and the barrage of the propaganda by our own establishment and the international establishment and the President of the United States. Nevertheless, we voted to leave, and these people have got no respect for that decision and are actually trying to reverse it. And some of them uh, have been coming increasingly visibly unhappy as the... <laughs> their exit date from the European Parliament draws closer. Because you've got to remember what kind, of a, what kind of a deal they've already got. I mean, I don't think there's a job like this anywhere else in the world. If anybody knows of one, can they, can they write in and tell me? You get a massive salary. Uh, I think it's about 90-odd thousand euros. I don't get that because I elected to stay on the same salary as a UK MP, so I get less money than most of them. But they've got a massive salary. They get 300 euros a day tax-free for turning up. So if you want there, you, if you want to, you can you can go to Brussels five days a week. So you can get another seventy five, eighty thousand on top of your. Sum. Well, uh, yeah, if you do the sum, so it's e- you can easily rack up a th- thousand, uh, an extra thousand quid a week, um, just by doing four days. And by the time you've paid your food and living expenses, you know it's it's not bad everywhere. How many people have got a job that pays them, you know, an extra thousand quid for four days? A bonus to turn twelve hundred quid. Uh, for four days uh, work, not even work, just turning up. And on top of that, they get a massive pension, which you couldn't get in the real world, which I don't get because I get the same pension as a, a UK MP. Um, and, of course, we have ruined their lives, some of these people. Some of these people never had a real job anyway, if you look at their history. Uh, they've worked in you know NGOs and charities and things like that. They've never actually had to work in the real commercial world. Most of them would be unemployable anyway. Uh, when it all comes to an end, and they have, they have become visibly more and more unhappy, certainly with UKIP, to the extent that uh, one of them, as me and my assistants were leaving the Parliament uh, when we were in Strasbourg, one of them actually swore at us. <laughs> uh, so if it, that actually makes me feel good to know that. Did you these, get a translation? Uh, it didn't, didn't need to. It was English. It was an English uh, MEP. I won't say who it was. I won't say it was, but. Uh, they were very unhappy, and uh, that made my day because I thought these people are quite happy to see their country betrayed on a monthly basis with our ability to govern our own affairs, salami sliced away with every piece of law that comes out, every directive, every regulation. So the sooner they're dumped back into the real world and have to go and earn a living, the better. And that is it for this episode. If there's anything you'd like to add or contribute to future episodes, then make sure you follow Gerard on Twitter at Gerard Batten MEP.